welcome to Preflections, a series of conversations brought to you by Pantopicon in which we reflect upon present-day society and peer through its cracks in anticipation of possible worlds to come. Before we start this podcast, we have a small request. If you appreciate our conversations and do not want to miss new episodes, we would love it if you would subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other place you get your podcast from. And leave us your scores or reviews. It means a lot to us and we'd love to hear from you. Of course, you can also get in touch more directly via Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram. This week I had a chat with Inja Schops, Goldman Environmental Prize winner, director of the Flemish National Park or Regional Landscape Camp Amuse, as it's called, and president of Europark, the Federation of Nature and National Parks of Europe. We talked about the value of nature for people as individuals, families, but also for an entire society, its economy, and about how to express this value and weaponize it as an argument in political and economic decision-making. Our conversation is as much about the hard arguments as the soft power of storytelling and new alliances, about bottom-up initiatives and top-down action reinforcing one another. It is with passion and some great stories, metaphors and parallels that Inyas draws us into his world and shows us what can be achieved when we bring our minds, hearts and hands to the job. Have a wonderful listen. Yes, welcome to Preflections. Hey, good evening. How are you? <laughs> Fine, thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, yes, people know you as, as kind of like the, the spiritual father to our, our national park, the, the regional uh, landscape, Kempen and Masland, as, as it's called here. Um, but that's just one achievement in, in a long list of things that you uh, were a crucial factor in. Um, now you're also president of the Europark uh, Federation. Um, could you take a moment to connect some of these dots in your career for us? What inspired you? What drove your choices and your actions? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, let's say that I'm from my childhood of that I was very interested in, in biodiversity and nature just as a, as, a, as a boy, like so many of us. And uh, over the years, then I tried to focus on that and try to make a career in that. And uh, one step ahead, they say always. And uh, so I started with uh, doing some courses, some evening courses on to, to, to have a little bit more of, uh, let's say, knowledge and did some trainings there. And from one came the other and uh, people saw me as a, a big, let's say, um, energizer. And um, then I was able that for this province, the province of Limburg in the northeast of, of Belgium, where yeah, it's the most green province of, of the Flanders region in Belgium, where, well, let's say 30 years ago, we were not, let's say, aware about, let's say, the power and the, the beauty of, of, of nature over here. So I, I had the privilege to, to be, as let's say, the early adapters. So we are, I was front runner and tried to make things happen. And so I started to work then at a certain moment uh, as the coordinator of the largest nature conservation organization in Belgium, which is called Natuurpunt nowadays. And from one came the other. I was doing lots of things on herpetology uh, because I'm very, very fond on frogs and lizards and snakes and did some research on that, also scientific research. And uh, then, you know, the Peters principle is where are you good at? And people said to me, yeah, you, you're good in convincing. And from then I thought, okay, let's try to combine these things, the knowledge that I have built uh, on wildlife and biodiversity 
and then try to convince, let's say, decision makers to make the next sustainable step that we need for the future. And um, yeah, gradually I grew from nature conservation organization into the idea of uh, make nature sexy, as simple as that. And uh, that became world news because I won the Green Nobel Prize in 2008 and uh, the Golden Environmental Prize. And yeah, things keep kept on going. So then I became a president of Europark Federation and Ashoka Fellow, which is called more the social, uh, world leading social entrepreneurs. I'm in the Club of Rome. I'm so many. Normally, you need to, to be dead for all these recognitions that I got, and the recognitions I got is yeah only due to a fantastic team that that I have. But what is most important, I think that we didn't sit still in our province. We were connecting all the time uh, with let's say our country, but also the neighboring countries than the European level and for me, luckily, also uh, the world level because I tried to combine biodiversity uh, some years later with climate change and I became an ambassador for El Gore as well. It's an amazing uh, story indeed and, and I guess most people don't fully realize what that, that means. Also the way that it stacks up to the, the other international projects that you that you now are becoming more and more aware of. What, what makes it so unique, do you think, what you did here, uh, connecting all those little fragments of that used to be there before and now it's this one big huge park i would say that uh yeah i think of course we we need to have good good a good team that is willing to do let's say a real fast majority of work or and and, and willing not we are not obliged to do we are willing huh? so it's from deep in our hearts and the other thing what makes it different is that I was, when I was, um, let's say, 16 to 18 years, I was I was a kind of a rebel of the street. So I always say I, I did the university of the street. Uh, so I, I was thrown out all the color, the uh, Catholic, let's say, the hero, uh, what is called here, Catholic uh, <laughs> organizations. So I said, okay, let's, then I start myself an organization from scratch, really building an old farm with our own hands making it a pub and, 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 and yeah, you know, people would say, oh, this is anarchistic, but it wasn't. It was just making <laughs> it <fun>. work. <laughs> and, but of course I was confronted. I was president of a, of a big organization, a big local, uh, let's say NGO, a new one when I was 15 years old, confronted with, with drugs and things like that. So I had to find answers for that. And let's say experienced by life, uh, I could use these features later on in convincing politicians, decision makers say, hey, please come out, come, come out with us and see what is happening there because biodiversity is not just the birds and the bees. The bees it is about clean water, clean air. It's about health, healthy parks, healthy people. So that was the first step, trying to convince out of the, let's say, out of positive energy. And later on, I became aware and also with my team, we became aware that Decisions are often made, uh, let's say, when people really understand what is going on. So we learned another language for wildlife, for biodiversity, for nature. It's not the language because the language is intrinsic, intrinsic values. But yeah, people who work with art are also very, let's say, close connected with intrinsic values. But if you go wider uh, in the wider world, politicians they they are not, let's say, so familiar with the word. So we try to. We, and we developed a kind of a model to translate biodiversity into an economic language. What is the ecosystem services, they call it now, but what is the, the monetary uh, value of, of wildlife? 
And by doing so, we had uh, yeah, a lot of proof that the small investment that, for instance, governments need to, to, to take or to make for, for investing wildlife yeah, comes back in yeah, 100 times, multiple, uh, multiple times. And once we started to, to let's say, to, to be very good in promoting and very good in communicating, also with proof, and proof was uh, not only built on our own science, but also built by universities and institutes. So then it became interesting for, for politicians. Eh? You have to know a little story on that. I, I'm an herpetologist, so frogs and lizards. And uh, I think yeah, now more than 30 years ago, I did a lot of research on tree frogs and midwife toes and things like that. And then even then I started to lobby for wildlife. And I went to ministers at the time and, and, and I told stories about tree frogs because I was so fond of tree frogs or whatever uh, species it was. And 10 years later, these ministers, they, 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 told, they, they told me, I remember your stories, but I couldn't make any decision, political decision, based on a tree frog story where you fell out of a tree and things like that. So I tried to translate that into an economic language, but still telling the story about the tree frog, of course, and it helped. And now we see that, for instance, a small national park in, in international terms, uh, the Hogekampen National Park in, in Belgium, the first and only national park we still have in Belgium, yeah, has an, 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 uh, an economic turnover directly and indirectly of 191 million euros a year and 5,000 jobs are connected. So suddenly then politicians opened the door and said, hey, do you want to have a coffee, cup of coffee? Because how do you did how did you do that? And so I could explain what, let's say, the mechanisms are of that, what we call the reconnection model, try to reconnect society with nature, with nature, reconnecting nature with nature, reconnecting people with nature, reconnecting business with nature, and reconnecting policy uh, with practice. So this is what we always did, and then, bring proof come on come out on the open field come out after uh, come uh, out of your desks and all your offices you have to feel what it is and what we see at least in in, in uh, now also in europe because the, the model is expanding a lot uh, throughout the world but also in europe we see that the communities are, are loving this idea and the good thing and, and for that, that's where we come in reality now with covid 19 uh, you see of course that the, the the need for nature is so high mm -hmm. for our own health um, uh, that we now rediscover our let's say real instinct and and, and uh, our, our connection with, with, with wildlife and hopefully and that's hopefully uh, what I think is that what we see with COVID nineteen is that uh, politicians globally uh, let's say on average start to to work on let's say the the science that is brought by scientists uh, so the, the basis for decisions are about, based on science so we hope now that also for climate change and uh, biodiversity laws that hopefully they come to senses and say okay let's let's now listen to these scientists and try to design a new let's say uh, era of sustainability uh, for the world so mm -hmm. that that's what what is interesting and, and good to see there because you could say uh, anything changes because because the, these environmentalists are just a small group in the world and they're always calling for action and uh, and protesting all the time 
But there is something new nowadays in the last, let's say, I must say 10 years, uh, but it increased in the last five years. You see now that the economic sector is really scary about losing the comfort zone they're in because they can, it is raining when it doesn't have to rain. It is, it is the heat waves and the, or the, the hurricanes, everything comes there. And now for the first time, I think in, uh, in, in history of the World Economic Forum, the global uh, outlook and what they make every year, so a global analysis, analysis is now dominated by and the environment. So they're really much aware of what is what the state we are in. And of course, this helps a lot because it's not only the environmental world who is calling for change, for a systemic change. It's now also the economic world that, that comes across and, and bridge, let's say, uh, these two worlds and hopefully the politicians come in and hope and, and I, at the moment uh, all these organizations are trying to force things uh, to have the uh, planetary emergency called uh, in uh, the end of this year the, at the General Assembly of, of the United Nations to the, the state of, of emergency and for the planetary the state of planetary emergency uh, and that would be good because we need <clears throat> Very, it's very simple to say what we need. We need we need to uh, um, cut emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, by half in ten years, and we would like to have also all the species surviving in the world. And it's a simple thing. It's it's three or four sentences, but it is a it's a hell of a job. And the beauty of it, because what what to to my mind. Huh, um, is if you say we need to be carbon friendly, nobody knows what it is. No. What is carbon friendly? Sustainability. Eh? So what is sustainability? I always say it's something like like teenager sex. Eh? All, all the young people are talking about <laughs> it, and those who are doing that doing it, they're doing it very badly. Eh? So yeah. that's yeah, a container uh, a word, a buzzword. So we have to try to let's say find a, a story, maybe, but the real story. How does paradise look like in the future? Is there coffee? Will we laugh? Do we lose comfort or not? What is the relation between poor and rich? Mm-hmm. Is there a social balance? Do we? Have, this is the story we need to make because all these numbers uh, is, is interesting because I, 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 uh, I say may base my story on that, but the story is more, more and more powerful. And also there you see uh, and we learned from the from the past that stories can really make a big change. Eh? That's uh, what I try to say nowadays. I use it also. Maybe you're familiar with with the, the moonshot of John mm-hmm. F. Kennedy in 1961. Say, I want to have a man on the moon in the next decade. I don't know how, eh? yeah. uh, but in less than ten years, there was a man on the moon. Mm-hmm. And 400,000 people worked on it, 20,000 uh, enterprises worked on it, and there was $135 billion involved. So now we need not a moonshot, but an earth shot. So now we need a new, let's say, story for the earth and for us, because the planet will be there all the time. But if, if we want to have a beautiful mm-hmm. place and also our children and the future generations, it's up to us. Eh? So, uh, And that's what we need. Huh? You were talking about uh, being in a certain moment now, Enyas. Um, when you mentioned the, the power of stories, which is uh, undeniable, uh, I sometimes have the feeling that there is this um, 
stories are getting in sync. On the one hand, you have the stories that scare people to death uh, and companies and organizations and governments. And on the other hand, there are the stories that show that it's not an impossible task. There are things that bring it within reach. Uh, they might still be very difficult and very challenging and we might not know exactly what we need to do. But um, there are stepping stones that we can see. Um, whereas before, it, it, it seemed almost as if there was only the big scary story and no idea of how to, how to tackle it. How do you look at the, the value of, of these both uh, types of stories? Yeah, they will always exist. There's 55% who, who, who makes it go, and uh, let's say the, the coin go to the one side or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, so but the good thing is that I think um, a big part of the world know now how things work and we have science behind us and we know how also stories are made for the wrong reasons. So now mm -hmm. we can, we can, let's say balance on it. We can see how powerful stories can be and also trying to tell stories and not lie because that, that's important. Of course, you can tell a story that you cannot lie, but the story helps to explain to a large group of, of, uh, of the audience uh, to make it simple. And for, for instance, if we talk about, if everybody is talking about circular economy at the moment, but what is circular economy? Huh? What is it? So I always try to, and I really, I, I, I make a big effort for that to try to make stories on that. But I, I try to uh, make a story nowadays on what the economic system up till now is. And it is completely yeah, shifted how we organize our, uh, our economy. And the, the, the example I always give is that you, you probably know in, in 1879, Edison, he found a light, light was found a light bulb. And so also at that time, young engineers, they started to, to, to really design a beautiful light bulb and they were really increasing, let's say, the features of the light bulb. Now, what happened, and this is a real story, you can, you can uh, 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 let's say, you can, uh, there is proof enough for that, it's also on the, on the website uh, for that. In 1901, in Livermore, it's a, it's a city, mm -hmm. a small city in California, in, and then in a, in, a, in a magazine, they were just pulling in that light bulb and they switched on. Now, 119 years later, day and night, this light bulb is still burning. So day and night, you can see it, a light bulb burning at the website. Huh? Um, now, what happened, and that's so beautiful to, to explain what the economy is, is that all the enterprises who were designing light bulbs, they gathered. And it's called the Phoebus Conspiracy because they said, this is a bad business plan. Because if we produce light bulbs that last so long, we cannot sell too much. So we make a conspiracy. We make a deal. We only produce light bulbs that can last for a maximum of 1,000 hours. And those enterprises or those entrepreneurs who would like to make a light bulb that can last longer, they have to pay a fine. So we organized our entire economy on a business plan only to make money, where new is almost broken, 
where new is always for the bin. So there is that. That let's say that's our that was our economy, and it worked because first you had the United States, and then it was expanding. Then the global and globalization, and now we come aware and say, okay, this is not the good thing. So we need to come to another, uh, let's say, maybe a, a beautiful story in the sense of we don't buy light bulbs in the future anymore, but we will buy light. Mm-hmm. And I will say and go to the groceries and say, I need 5,000 hours of light. And hope, and then he will say, and uh, will say, hopefully he can do it with one light bulb. Or if you go to, to, to buy a new car, you go to Porsche or Ford or whatever, uh, and they say, I want to have 100,000 kilometers. And of course, then Porsche or Volkswagen will say, I hope he can do it with one car, because if I have to construct two cars for 100,000 kilometers, I have a bad business plan. So it is, and that's circular economy. It's a service-orientated economy. And of course, if we think about that further, about, about all the materials, materials that are used in these, all the things that we use, then you come to the conclusion that maybe that's the future, that's the paradise where we do it differently and we don't feel too bad about it. Of course, the comfort is still there and we we can yeah, balance better, let's say, what is what is social incorrect, uh, rich and poor. So that's, that's, let's say, the story, at least that's my hardware and I try to mm-hmm. work on. Uh, there's, now that you mentioned uh, the whole circular economy, etc., there's, there's a lot of... Uh, Fascinating shifts taking place, as you mentioned, in in the world of business and uh, also in the world of materials and and all kinds of resources. And but there's also an issue of having to operate at a a different scale or rescaling certain parts of of that model. Certain things can latch on to very small, almost uh, micro projects in a very localized area. Yes. And on the other hand, you might need half of Europe for certain other things, which needs a completely different way to govern uh, those uh, flows as well. Yeah, and that's new. And that's new, and that's what they call global. So we have to have the the global view, but try to produce it locally. Uh, And that's the new, yeah, say, paradigm, whatever you you may call it. Uh, But one of the sentences I always use is, think globally act locally, everybody knows those two, but there's a third part and has changed personally. That's where it starts. It starts with you personally. What am I doing to provide a better better air in my neighborhood? How can I have nature in my flowering pot? Because nature starts in your flowering pot, not in a nature reserve. It is everywhere. How can I help with that? That's that's where it starts. And you have to, and, and so, Simple things, very simple thing. I take my bike to go to the, 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 the groceries. I, I simple things. I walk in, instead of taking my car. And it, and of course, you can fail every now and then. Everybody, we, we are all, yeah, make mistakes. But if mm. you think about it, so the, the changing personally is the first step and say, okay, interesting. I feel more mm. healthy if I walk more or cycle more and. Things happen like that. And then you see that the, the beauty of, of wildlife is there because when you walk or you cycle, you are, let's say, not that as fast and there is not that noise uh, surrounding you. And you see and you feel and you you see birds where, which you never saw. 
you hear no, you hear songs which you never heard, and then you start to question, oh, what is it? And then you're interested, and it goes like that and like that and like that. And that's mm-hmm. that's so beautiful, beautiful, I think, to to take people and from from let's say from the very yeah, left to the very right and from the poor to the rich, take them with you and say, come on, now be be silent in in a, in a grassland or whatever in a forest, mm-hmm. and just listen to the the sound of nature. Yeah, I, I think that's that's where the real power lies, and in, indeed, in, in that uh, it also makes you. Um, I think it. You mentioned the COVID nineteen period now as as being almost uh, an example of that that mind shift taking place because people they were so hungry for nature, as you mentioned, um, and it's that very direct connection without all the rationalized blah blah around it. They could physically and mentally feel not just a benefit from a, an almost uh, selfish uh, notion uh, in, in terms of the, the connection with nature, but more in general of what it means in their lives, personally, family lives, connecting with other people, um, which makes you wonder whether a better approach in terms of, for example, the educational challenge of young children, instead of yeah. giving them the abstract biology classes, wouldn't it be better to take them out of the classroom and just put yeah, them not in Not every the- classroom has four walls, eh? No. <laughs> and not every meeting room has four walls. No. And that's where it starts, of course. I think that's the most powerful thing. You have to start with education. If you don't know, you, you, you don't know what, what is happening. Uh, but for instance, in education on wildlife or ecosystems and these yeah big words, but I don't know if you know, but 100,000 billion living species are in everybody. In you, in me, so the microbes, these are living mechanisms, living things that they weigh one and a half kilo per, per person, but it's an ecosystem and they keeps you, keep you alive, they keep you healthy. And if we, call, if we talk about biodiversity loss, it's also the loss on our personal, our body ecosystem and life systems. So we Microbiome. are losing, losing these, let's say, small doctors inside of us at the same, let's say, speed as the rest of, of nature. So it is there that we need to invest in. It's about ourselves. It's not the birds and the bees. Uh, it's also about mm-hmm. ourselves. And that's, that's uh, I think, a crucial point uh, that if people become aware that they are part of nature and not above of nature, so we are, we are, we are, yeah, a little bit more than apes, eh, you know, you know, mm-hmm. that far away. And that's why that's so beautiful. And then the other thing is that finding new connections. Huh? The, the, what, what we see nowadays, I was talking about the economic sector. Mm-hmm. But then there is another, let's say, maybe also good for a po- podcast for you. Uh, you have Kun van Mechelen, of course, where I work with yes. a lot. Yeah. Uh, but now what we are, this is not a chicken in- initiative where an artist, uh, a human rights, uh, let's say, uh, Secretary, General, uh, Secretary General of the Global Campus of the Human Rights, and myself now take the forefront of a movement that yeah we cannot become chickens because we we are becoming chickens for certainly now in COVID times uh, where I call for nature as a human right and so the declaration mm-hmm. of dependency of nature for me it's a big thing I'm working on that at the United Nations level also at the European level and on Thursday I'm going to the European Commission uh, Commissioner for the Environment talking about that the declaration of dependency of nature, because everybody knows that we are independent, of course, 
it has something in mind we want we and of course we need to be free and we would like to be as independent as possible mm-hmm. but as a person as a body we are dependent as hell mm-hmm. so there is a, a, how to say a both a balanced way about independency in mind and dependency in, in body and that's something very powerful and that's why I'm really trying to again try to make stories at the highest level I, I, mm-hmm. I was talking last year with the Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres from the from the United Nations mm-hmm. and I, I asked him who is now working for the peace balance in the world and it's the blue helmets of course, mm-hmm. and they do tremendous good work. But maybe in 25 years, it needs to we need the green, ones. green helmets. Yeah. Because that's then what is uh, the big problem in the world. So why don't we take these ideas into account that also these blue helmets can evolve into the green helmets and go to, uh, to Africa or South America and help there to restore uh, habitats and ecosystems? Because it it's life threatening mm-hmm. you mentioned the, the restoration i think um there's there's a, been a a tremendous shift also in in the um, us recognizing as as humanity almost or at least some perhaps earlier than others that just conservation and protection of what we have is not enough we need a, a regenerative a re- restorative approach also to the things that we spoiled in the past or that we yes yeah pulled out of balance um how What's your take on that? Where where should the the focus lay? I guess you're going to say it's it's both that you need, but um... yeah, it's both that you need. But on the other hand, what I I, I always to, I already told that that of course the biodiversity loss is really going rapidly. Huh? So we lose uh, approximately every twenty minutes we lose a species. Uh, so this is fast. Huh? So it's even worse. I think biodiversity loss is existential. Hmm. And um, if you compare biodiversity loss with uh, an engine, for instance, and how many screws can fall out of an engine before it stops to work? So if you, it's not a good, uh, let's say, comparison at the moment because flying and and, uh, flight Mm -hmm. is not that good for for climate. But for instance, if you are now planning to to fly uh, to wherever you want to go, and before stepping on the plane, um, the, the, the voice is saying, "Take your boarding pass. We are we are boarding in a minute, but we have to say to you, we are losing three screws and five parts. Do you step on the plane then? No, you don't step on the plane because you're not sure that you will fall or not. But if you compare our planet, which is also a living engine, a living ecosystem, where every 20 minutes is a screw falling." apart then we have to take notice of that hey we have to restore that there is good science on that there is a beautiful book on that it's called half earth uh, from edward of uh, edward o wilson he's one of the big scientists uh, globally at the moment he's in is i think 92 now i i was yeah so happy that i could meet him twice i think in my life Uh, but he says if we want to Perceive, or if we want to keep 85% of all the living creatures on this planet, we need to have half uh, planet uh, preserved for nature, for wildlife. 
and it's not half nature and half society. No, no, it is, of course, uh, a range of things, and this is possible. And mm. then, of course, if you go into that idea, then you say, okay, can a building become uh, uh, an engine that cleans air? Can we do cleaning air by cycling? Can we build new cities where we grow tomatoes instead of uh, jeans? Things like that. This is this is complete new uh, idea with the, uh, the systematic change or the systemic change. And it's a beautiful period for all these young people who are now doubting what will happen in my life. Is there a future? They can question everything because we need to change everything. And it's also a beautiful period if we say, okay, paradise can be something beautiful. And you can make your part of it. You can be part of it. You can make yeah, new principles. And that's so beauty, I think, and I still believe at least in, you know, also the youth. If you see now the last uh, protests that were happening, if you go to George Floyd or you go to the climate protests, it is often young people that take mm -hmm. the lead. And um, that's what we see with Greta Thunberg. Huh? How dare you? She takes the lead in that. Uh, but also in 1992, it was a young lady, Severin Suzuki, uh, now a leading environmentalist out of Canada, who always said, it's not what you say to the world leaders, but it is what you do. She was 12 at the time in 1992. Uh, mm -hmm. But she was saying that for this yeah, filled room of, of big chiefs, uh, of all these uh, heads of state. And of course, it, it is so powerful. And that's why I believe in, 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 in young people. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, we know there is a blind spot as well, huh? because uh, for every white, there is black. And, 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 and But still, I see, I see a lot of good things there. Yeah, you mentioned yes the the, the impact, uh, for example, that uh, nature has on on people's health, both mentally as well as as, as physical health. Uh, there's fascinating research coming out also of people in urban planning and architecture, how it's the way that we organize our cities, not just in terms of the materials that we use, but the way we um, infuse nature in cities, yeah. uh, taking in the ecosystems uh, into account uh, as a more than beneficial. It's like it, you earn it back a uh, hundred times, course, as yeah. you mentioned. Um, and then again, there's also this notion that in a lot of places, um, some of the efforts are what you could call investments in a green desert, where there's uh, cities that are being populated with trees that are not part of a healthy ecosystem, that are... Um, it's almost like the greenwashing or window dressing, uh, what is happening. So we're, we're planting a lot of things, but without really understanding. So the role of the urban ecologist almost becomes a, a primordial role, or like a really important role in, the, in, in building our cities or preparing them for the future, whether it's fighting climate change or whether it's for the health of people or yeah. other species in, the, in those uh, cities. How do you look at the, the quality of the efforts, not just the quantity, because... There are a lot of people shouting, we're going to plant that many trees and then yeah, yeah. they forget to water them. Uh, just <laughs> Yeah, that's, I think there lies a big um, importance in how we design the, the cities of the future. And what we saw over the last years was that the environmental world and the environmental movement, the nature conservation movement, was not talking about city nature. Because they thought that's in the city. We are in the real nature where the big animals uh, are. But I think that change will come from 
the big capitals, the real big capitals, because most of the people are living there and will be living there. And also uh, we can really make a change over there. And that's why for us as president of Europark Federation, I uh, asked the biggest uh, network in Europe uh, working on very urban parks to join us in, uh, in, our, in our federation because we can learn a lot about how this works very urban nature and if you you could call the national park in in limburg and in our, our national park also very urban if you I mean, this is not an ecosystem that that uh, can completely uh, let's say sustain on by by itself so it's also yeah i think there are six million people living at uh, one hour car, car drive and uh, uh, in, in our national park so we can learn a lot of how this urban nature can be the stepping stones to to recover and to to restore, let's say, the big uh, and uh, just a few big, really robust uh, nature areas that we still have in Eastern Europe and South Europe, uh, and of course, and the rest of, of, of the world. And in, in that uh, sense, it is so important that we need the cities included. And so, so that's why nature-based solutions or following nature's design is so, so these are new principles that are used. Um, and also that's why I think, think that also the big political uh, change will start in the big capitals because I think a mayor of New York, whatever Trump is saying at the moment, he goes further with climate change uh, or San Francisco or go, things like that. All mm -hmm. these, because they know that taking a decision which is sustainable, green, climate friendly, delivers votes. And there's a little yeah, voice in me that says, if you do, if you make policy and you are re-elected, well, you don't need any more. And now, luckily, it is the trend is green, climate friendly, biodiversity robust, uh, uh, social correct, uh, circular. Well, the trend is there. So that's the good thing. There is a wave coming up and the mm -hmm. wave is sustainable. And of course, we are hesitating. We see that in our own province where uh, a lot of people still are hesitating, is this the right way? We, because we want to, to stay in the old school idea and so on and so forth. So we need these early adapters and they are there as well, because I talk a lot with people uh, in Europe, but also in my local situation in the Limburg region, where they come to me and say, hey, we know that if we don't work sustainable in the future, we will lose the game. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is gradually is growing. The only, if, you, if you ask me, what is your biggest fear? There's one big fear that I have is time. We are losing time. We're running out of time because I'm so convinced that we, as let's say intellectual conscious people, we will find solutions in the end, but I don't know if we have the time mm. before we have to start. I think it links up with the idea that just the, the early adopters or the, the bottom up and the, and the scaling of that that process is, is not enough. You also need a top down movement where you say, okay, this is this is Correct. the direction we're going to go. So, um, but and I, well, we've had some um, uh, well uh, discouraging examples again in the past in the past months where we see that one legislative approach to say we're going to put a halt to. Uh, more concrete, more construction, et cetera. And the, the effect is exactly the opposite. We're, we're utilizing 
um, some kind of instrument, a policy instrument, but either the instrument is not correct or we're using it in the wrong way. Um, so it seems that we need something to protect us from ourselves, whether that's at the political level or at the personal level. Um, what are some instruments that you see elsewhere or some initiatives that you say, listen, if you adopt more this line of reasoning, we can actually accelerate the path we're on in yeah. a positive sense. Yeah, there are, if you, if we stay close to cities, then you see, and, and it's often used, of course, as an example, it's Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And Copenhagen that uh, decided, I think, 15 years ago, and you have to think Copenhagen is as, let's say, as large as Antwerp, something like that. Mm -hmm. You can compare it with that. But they decided 15 years ago that whatever political coalition there will be, we will go for a sustainable uh, uh, design of Copenhagen. And, well, the rest is history. It's such a beautiful thing. If you see mm -hmm. now what is happening, for instance, if we stay in, in Europe, in Amsterdam, uh, where really beautiful things are happening, uh, they are, of course, they're doing by learning and also with mistakes and, and things like that, but it is so beautiful because they, there is a kind of trust that is given mm -hmm. by the authorities and say, okay, here is an area, do whatever you think you do, but in the end, it's all sustainable. And we need to learn of these, what, you, what we told before, these local things, huh? because locally there are so good things and often, and often they are related to history. Our grandmothers and grandfathers, they were very much more sustainable as we were. Mm -hmm. They didn't have any garbage because yeah, everything was usable and reusable and recycled. So we need to go to our grandmummies and granddaddies and say, how did you do that? Oh, it was possible to make a chair from wood or whatever. How do things like that? So we also when we when we look at the past, we can see the future as well. And that's something we need to learn and to respect also because we see uh, if we go back to our own uh, uh, Europe, we are uh, uh, growing into the grayness, eh? we, we become mm -hmm. older and older, the gray uh, continent, but we can learn all of all these old habited, habitats, these old craft works, we can learn, and not as something of the past, but as something of the future. And we need to, that's the one thing. And the other thing is, that's the story. If you talk about the, the architectural design of the future with uh, the, 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 the Flemish Baumeister, right? where, where mm -hmm. he also had this idea and so, and so on and so forth, and then it's used wrongly. You have the mm -hmm. opposite effect. Well, we, don't, we, we cannot give up. No. It's not possible huh, to give up. Huh? First, they laugh at you, then they fight with you, and then you win. Huh? So. So that's what, uh, what, what, what we need to do. We don't, don't give up. If you look to the design of, of our national park, it lasted 10 years of lobbying before they gave us the benefit of the doubt. And then, and still they were thinking and laughing. I think, well, yeah, let's see what happens. Those green guys there. And yeah, and then we become world news. And well, this is, and it's not that I would like to say that it's because of me. You know, I got the opportunity of a society. And that's mm -hmm. the other beautiful thing of 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 my of, of our region, the Limburg region, from my point from my point of view, is what we see now in the world is a need for a systemic change, a shift also in how we yeah create a new kind of energy, uh, really uh, the, the 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 neutral energy in in two thousand fifty. Um, so 
And what we see now, and it's so beautiful, and nobody goes with me in this idea, we in this region, in this part of, of Europe, we created a world after coal mining. We mm -hmm. came from a, a lung of dust to a green lung, and we did it together. Let's say the entrepreneurial world, the politicians, the greens. So we did something. We showed resilience. What is now needed in uh, Poland, in Russia, in South Africa, in China is a shift towards that, let's say, renewable energy era. And we have not the example, but we have one beautiful example to show the world that it is possible. Last mine closed in 1991. In 2010, we, had, we were, let's say, we saw a window of opportunities. We were, yeah, we, we came out of that harsh period. And that's something we need to talk about because I was a month ago, or not, it's two months ago, two, two months ago, uh, a lot of specialists from South Africa, they have still 131 coal mines open and they need, of course, to fade out, to phase out. So how to do that? So, and I was talking about our story. And that's the beautiful because I can tell my story because, because uh, out of passion because it's mm -hmm. what we believe in. And immediately these people say, wow, fantastic. They cannot copy that 131 times. But we give them energy and say, it is possible if we work together. And if we think inclusive and we think between the social balance and biodiversity. And so, so that's... And we need to, yeah, let's say more Dutch because they want to become world champion all the time. They never get it, but yeah, but that's they have the guts of the saying. Let's 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 try to do so. So we need to have that big idea that we can do something. Is is that something that you feel like we're uh, we're not doing enough? A bit like like Finland became world famous for for many things, but among others, their their educational system, and it became a true expert product. Uh, uh, the Dutch have their special envoy for 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 water matters, so for water yeah. management. So, is that something this this type of even under difficult circumstances you can turn something around uh, through the through the Belgian mud? I would almost say, is that something we should export more? Yeah, I think I think it is possible, but we have to start to believe in that sustainable, the broad sustainable idea that it is that this is something we can make a real good society based on, on, on the, these, let's say, values of sustainability. And that's what we see, of course, that at the moment, in, in not only in Belgium, but at the European level, those who are, have all the credits are those who are uh, providing the, 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 the most amount of jobs. Because they are powerful and they say, oh, we have 150,000 jobs to that, that there may be uh, uh, in, on, uh, on the threat. But on the other hand, you have to provide and to start with thinking, how can we how can we build paradise? And we need a few people uh, of with the same thinking. And then it starts. We we can we, we started also the, the, the just an example to to tell you how mm -hmm. it is possible. The cycling network in, in in Limburg we call it the eight world wonder in this province. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but again, when we because we as my my company, you know, Landscape Campen and Maasland, we de we designed it, we developed it, and of course we said, not everybody is cycling in Flanders and the Netherlands and in Germany, but those who want to cycle, they have to come to our region because we want to become world champion in our niche. 
So it's about a dream. It's about passion and say, okay, the highest level, we go for the highest level, the quality, the beauty, the, the beautiful heritage. That's where we go for. And that's the, yeah, the unique selling proposition that we need, of course, mm -hmm. uh, to articulate as well for this province. Huh? I think we, we that, that's just one line. The green province, we need to, and, and this is a trend of the future. Is uh, I mean, nature doesn't stop at borders. We've seen that now with COVID-19 in the negative sense, but also in the positive sense that, that works as well. Uh, can you see the, um, whether it's the national park here or the Limburg uh, region, I would say, uh, or the EU region that never really took off as an, as an idea. Could nature be the vehicle through which we really rediscover the power of that cross-border collaboration and say, can we see the tentacles of that national park become an international lung rather well, than just a national one? Well, I think that the, what we try to do is to, to interconnect the, the green lungs, uh, the national mm -hmm. parks and the regional parks together. That's what we do in, in Europe. But maybe the biggest win is in the idea that we don't have to do it by ourselves alone because now it's an yeah an integrated story that we need to tell it's not about the environmentalist against the entrepreneurial world or the social sector against the politicians no it is something we need to, to build together and we learned that yeah you can go fast when you go alone but you go further when you go uh, together mm -hmm. so that's that's something we need to and to convince people of and that's what i'm trying to do all my life to try to find stories which are correct that mm -hmm. people can yeah remind them of and also that they that they understand say, okay if we do it together and we do it like this so this province is the, the, those who are let's say very negative about the nature approach they say yeah but he will put everywhere a fence around so then we cannot do anything in this province And those who are very in favor for the nature approaches, yeah, we live in a region where we can uh, live, we can work, and where other people come for holiday. So it's an inclusive story. And this is also the inclusive story that we that I see in South America, that inclusive story that I see in, in Italy. And what you see now, I don't know if you're familiar with these, uh, there are some green barons in the world. It's mm -hmm. called green barons. These are, let's say, very rich people who take all their money and invest it in nature. Mm -hmm. And um, you have the Tompkins Foundation uh, in, in Chile and in Argentina, what they are doing. It's so unbelievable. And what I see now at, at the global level is that these uh, philanthropists and, and, and let's say mega rich people, they are joining. They are now coming, they are gathering and see, and they say to each other, how can we extract more mm. money to really make this possible to have a world for ourselves but also for the future uh, generations and not only for people but for every living creature that is born on this planet mm. yeah we had your your uh, ashoka fellow chris peleman on the podcast a few uh, few weeks okay, ago yeah, 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 uh, who especially looked into this the, the philanthropy and the, and the shifts in there and The other day I saw a post of Israel said, look, now even the philanthropists are gathering more money because they want to have a larger impact uh, yeah, by yeah. pooling it rather than doing it uh, yeah. separately. Um, what I found fascinating in, in your discourse, uh, Inyas, one of the things that you mentioned early on in the discourse was like, first I needed to talk in terms of uh, financial value. 
Uh, now you just mentioned, now it's the amount of jobs that's also a, uh, a crucial factor in terms of measuring impact or translating the value you could generate. Um, within the whole sustainability shift, it's not just about the ecology, but also about the, the societal and the social element of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the values, societal values are also shifting in which perhaps we don't express everything in money any longer. We see it in terms of mobility already happening. People want to be close to nature. They don't want to have to take drive for hours sure. to have access to it. So do you feel like there's also uh, an opening, uh, a window opening in terms of diversifying the, yes, the, the value is. through which you express? Yeah, I think it is. So I think what I was talking about, the, translate, the economic translation was something of the last, let's say, 15 years. But now mm. we see that people want to have another kind of approach with, where the economic is not, let's say, the overarching issue anymore. It's more like, what is my power? What is my freedom? What is my health? And, and, and of course, I want to have a comfortable life, but not in my bank account. I want a comfortable life with beautiful children and a beautiful wife and, 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 and a good, let's say, society to live in. Mm -hmm. So we, And that's the beauty of, of language, of course, because a language is just another way of translating yeah, love, if you, if you mm -hmm. want. So what we did is a translate, an economic translation because this was the overarching, let's say, determined uh, argument to make decisions. Well, mm -hmm. the next will be how can health how can intrinsic values maybe, and the beauty, just we do it because of the beauty of nature. That's why, I, why I, if you ask me, I say, okay, I do it for the beauty of nature. But yeah, you cannot buy a lot. But now where we see that health mm. comes in. Huh? So with Europark Federation, we are now in the 30th of uh, June, we will announce healthy parks, healthy people. Uh, a new concept where we really make this connection that you, your health is completely connected to nature. Uh, and and that's that's the beauty of it. And we can make we will make uh, also some beautiful uh, let's say uh, research projects out of that, so that we can also prove that's that's also the the interesting thing now that um, that we can show that change is possible at least in in, in that environmental oh. nature uh, uh, movement. Uh, that's the new approach that we now say is we not prove it in theory. You come and see what is happening in Portugal, uh, where let's say local communities are completely living 80 to 90 percent out of let's say what comes out of, of national parks, and we have to show that. That's why we do. Last week we had uh, seminar dialogue, dialogue, dialogue seminar dialogues with the, the EU, where they now come to Sensei, hey, show us what you are mm. doing. And of course, this is just local communities. Sometimes. 5,000 people, sometimes 300 people, but it is a local solution in a global thought of, of sustainability. And we need all those local, let's say, uh, uh, solutions and then connect them. And that's about reconnection. That's about reconnect the world to save ourselves. And uh, that's what I like. And that's that's all my energy goes to mm. these kind of ideas. And, you know, I don't know if you know, uh, uh, how is he called? Rabindrana Tagore. He, he, he was a poet you know, long ago. But he said we have to have faith, huh? and he he tried to to let's say to say what faith was, and I love that sentence that 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 quote that he brought that faith is the bird that feels the light and sings when the dawn is still dark. So 
what we feel as, as environmentalists is that, that we feel a little bit earlier than, than the rest of the world, the, beat, the, the heartbeat of, of our planet. Mm. And we are willing to say that, to, to, to negotiate, to convince people, say, hey, this is going on, this is happening at the moment, please help us with that. And that's the beauty, I think, of, of environmentalism. That's not only in the environmental world. Uh, we see that also in the art world, in the, let's say, the, the musical, uh, the, the world of music. You, you see it in all these things because there, there is a lot of feeling there. We feel the heartbeat. Uh, and we don't have to have every time a document that says that it is important. No, we feel it. And that's what we need to, to express to those who cannot feel it. And that's also not, a, yeah, let's say, uh, a disadvantage to not feel it. But uh, you have to find the right language to convey that message. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, of the heartbeat, uh, where do you, f what makes your heartbeat faster when you look at the examples you, you come across in, in, in your uh, international work um, in Yas. If you would name three from the very small to the very big that you say, that is just so amazing. Um, there should be more of that around. Yeah, it's in the simple things. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I, I, I'm, I, would, I would call me the boy. I'm just the boy of the street that is now lucky to have, let's say, all these interesting things that is happening to my life because of what I did. But it starts with local, simple things. And then I'm the happiest with, I will tell you a small story of my hero-ness, my real hero-ness, because this is just a beautiful story. I was doing research on amphibians and reptiles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I discovered, and it's now 25 years ago, or maybe later, uh, more, uh, the last population of the midwife toad. It's a yeah, it's a midwife toad that was living on an old graveyard in the south of the province of Limburg. <laughs> a little church with a little church and an old graveyard with all old uh, graves. And I was doing research on that on the population. I don't go into deep, uh, into depth with that. But then at a certain point, they were living really during the day in the small holes of the old graves because it was warm, the, yeah, it was very warm, it was on a small uh, mountain that, that they were living. But then, of course, because of the stability of the church was, was, well, was under pressure, and also these graves, they fall apart. So there was a big program then to stabilize the church. And the other thing was that the, that the city said, all the graves, they are not visited by all saints, they will be uh, dis uh, destructed. So, because we, we keep them, uh, we, uh, we, we will uh, destruct them, uh, dismantle them, I would say like this, uh, because, well, the families are dead and so on and so forth. But these were the beautiful habitats of my midwife toads, which was very, very uh, rare species for this region. Mm -hmm. So, then my hero ness was I bought flowers with all saints and I was <laughs> putting them on all the graves who were not visited. So I could win time could, and then go to the to politicians and say, come on, keep on having these graves because they are so important for wildlife. And I really, that's, that's something, oh, I can really live on these kind of ideas. And this is, this is just small things. Yeah. 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 You know, if you, if you are uh, healthy, you have a million dreams. And if you're sick, you have just one. Huh? So mm -hmm. the, the thing is, it starts personal, it's personally, beautiful, beautiful things. That's the same thing if, if a lot of uh, stress happens to me. 
I have a few places in, in my neighborhood where I go to. And for sure, in the period, let's say, starting from April to, let's say, June, uh, as a former um, uh, herpetologist, well, I go to places where the frogs give me a free concert every evening if I want. And I really see that as, as a concert. And I can, that's again about feeling, huh? it's about feeling and, and re-energizing myself and say, okay, that's why I do it for, for, for these species, but also for the people, because maybe that's another important one. Uh, I forgot to mention that, that value is in the eye of the beholder because a polar bear or a tree frog or a wolf, they don't know how important they are. They are just there. They are living. But if we start to think that a polar bear is important or a wolf or, or a tree frog, then we started yeah, to, to, to protect them. That's the, the cathedral of Tongeren. Huh? Mm -hmm. Why is he still there? Because we people give importance to that, to that uh, cathedral. Why is Van Gogh still there and another, let's say, uh, painter is not there anymore? Because we as human beings give value. Value is in the eye of the beholder. And that's why stories are so important because we have to convince nature. And nature as such, of course, needs to be there. But if you don't give voice to nature, we will lose the battle. Wonderful, Inas. <laughs> Great stories. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I, I hope that, uh, I'm quite sure actually, that a lot of people will will take away a lot of, of what you said and, and, and try to apply it in their own context. So uh, thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Perflections. If you enjoy our podcast, we would love it if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and rate us. And to continue the conversation, feel free to get in touch through Twitter at Pantopinik, P-A-N-T-O-P-I-N-I-K. And you can find Pantopicon, our foresight and design studio, making this podcast possible at Pantopicon, B-E, P-A-N-T-O-P-I-C-O-N, B-E. -E.